right, well, welcome to Living Hope Church. Welcome to those of you joining us online. If you're searching for your sermon notes, they might be underneath your seat uh, so the wind doesn't blow them away. Uh, also, the fans are bothering you. You're more than welcome to turn those off. Um, but uh, as you can feel, it gets a little warm in here. Uh, today, we are continuing in our sermon series we're calling Summer in the Psalms. And today, we're transitioning from the wisdom literature of Solomon in Psalm 127 to this uh, beautiful lyric written by King David in Psalm 19 about the glory and the splendor of God. Have you ever had a moment in time that you experienced something and it changed your outlook, it, it changed your life? Um, sometimes it's something serious and sometimes that's in life changing, and other times it's something uh, trivial. Uh, for example, as a, as a child, uh, we would occasionally eat uh, Campbell's clam chowder from the can at my grandparents. It was fine. But then I traveled to the Oregon coast and then to New England and had real fresh clam chowder, and it was a game changer. I will never eat clam chowder from a, clam, uh, from a can or clam chowder more than 20 miles from the ocean. It's just not the same. Uh, or my father-in-law, he, he moved uh, and he found a local ice cream place that makes fresh peach ice cream. And anytime you visit him, he wants to take you to experience his ice cream. It, it's phenomenal. But now as he travels the country for work, he constantly is comparing local ice cream places to his Handel's Peach ice cream. He experienced something great, and now it's the bar by which all ice cream is compared. Or when I lived, I lived in Bozeman, Montana before here, and I had a connection there to a local coffee roaster. And so I would get fresh day of roasted coffee when I was there. When I moved here, that is no longer an option. Now, Joel calls me a coffee snob, but once you taste something that is great, you can't go back. So I import my fresh roasted coffee. So those are trivial examples, but we've all had those real examples. Uh, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and I grew up with a, a view of the beautiful Mount Hood out my kitchen window. But the first time I saw the Grand Tetons, I was speechless. They're so majestic, so unique, so beautiful that I just had to stand in awe of God's creation. Or I think about the birth of each child. In each case, I was a little bit worried about whether or not I would feel that same love for this next child. But that moment you see them for the first time, everything changes. I was overwhelmed with an affection and a love for them that, that really makes no sense. But it's what happens when you experience that moment. That moment changed everything. I think about traveling overseas to Africa and seeing poverty like I had never seen before. Yet in that poverty, many still had immense joy, gratefulness, and love. That went against everything that our culture teaches, and I left changed. There are some things that we see, that we experience, that leave us changed forever. A moment can alter and change our life. And so it's with that truth that we look at Psalm 19. Because what David is going to lead us to do today is to see the glory of God. And he says when we see the glory of God, it's going to naturally lead us to change, to repent, and to give God the glory he deserves. This is a beautiful, lyrical psalm that, that leads us to rest and admire the beauty of our God. The great theologian C.S. Lewis said of this psalm, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. So let's read it, uh, unpack it, and try to apply it to our lives. We're in Psalm chapter 19. David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun, 
It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his race. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving lights to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is a great reward. But who can discern their own heirs? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Dear, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, psalm that David wrote. We thank you for the glory uh, that it reveals. The glory of you revealed in creation and in your word. And God, I pray that as we unpack and we look at this passage of Scripture, that you would help us to see your glory. See how great and how marvelous and how grand you are. And Lord, as we see your glory, we pray that, that as we see that glory, it would lead us to change, to, to make you a priority, to give you weight, to repent of our sin, and to follow you. Lord, would you open our eyes and our hearts to who you are and what it is you're calling us to do. God, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So this is a, a beautiful psalm of the grandeur and greatness of God. And it is that grandeur, that glory of God that our hearts desire to rest in. And it is that grandeur and that glory of God that draws us to him and leads us to repent and follow him alone. Pastor John Piper said of this psalm, We are all starved for the glory of God, not self. He said, No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase their self-esteem. There is greater healing for the soul in beholding the splendor of God than there is in beholding self. And so as you think about your life, what is your, what is your chief pursuit? What is it that is most important to you that you prioritize over all things? Now, I know we're at church, and you know the proper answer is Jesus. But go beyond the church answer and think about your life. What is it that you value most? What would your neighbors and friends say you value most? What does the way you spend your time, energy, resources say about what you value most? If you ask that question to random people across our culture, you'd get all sorts of answers. Chief pursuits would be love, family, money, success, prestige, degrees, sensual pleasure, happiness, self-fulfillment, and so on. Yet what we see in this psalm and we see in the Bible is that God desires to be our chief, our chief pursuit, our greatest treasure. It all comes back to this word glory that we see in verse 1. Google defines glory as high renown or honor won by notable achievements. Great beauty, something you take pride or pleasure in. And while that might be similar to your definition of glory, when you think about it, that's not exactly the biblical definition of glory. Uh, the biblical definition of glory it comes from the word kabod, uh, the Hebrew word kabod. And this word literally means weight. And so when we say give God glory... Or we ask, who does your life glorify? It means, who does your life value? Who does it prioritize? Who does it give weight to? Stephen Lawson, in his commentary, explains it like this. 
He said in this passage of Psalm 19, David lays out the intrinsic glory of God and in that calls us to ascribe or give glory or weight back to him. Intrinsic glory, he says, is the sum total of all of his divine attributes. It is the summation of his holiness, sovereignty, righteousness, grace, truth, goodness, mercy, justice, omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence, and more. He said all of these divine perfections constitute God's intrinsic glory, just who he is. And it is this that God desires to display in his creation and his works. And as God unveils his glory to man, man is called to give glory back to him, which is ascribed glory or the the weight and priority due his name. So because of God's intrinsic glory, because of who he is, the natural response and chief response or chief pursuit of man ought to be to ascribe or give glory back to God, to give him weight, to give him praise with our life. Because of who God is, because of his intrinsic glory revealed to us, we should respond by ascribing or giving glory, weight, priority back to him. And that's really kind of the outline or the the summation of this psalm. David is going to reveal God's intrinsic glory, which leads us to repentance, to ascribe glory, and ultimately to salvation through Jesus. So let's look again at verses 1 through 6 real quick. That's the first section of this psalm. David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Like a champion rejoicing to run his race. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. And nothing is deprived of its warmth. So in this section, David says, as we look to the heavens, as we look to creation, we are overwhelmed with the glory of God. And when David says heavens here, he is, he's not talking about a spiritual heaven. He is quite literally talking about the sky, the, the universe, the solar system. David says the skies declare to us how great is our God who created it all. So I, I've told you I grew up in Portland in western Oregon. And in Portland, I was surrounded by incredible beauty in the mountains, the trees. Everything there is green. And it's a beautiful place. But when you thought of the beauty of Oregon, the sky is an afterthought. For one, there doesn't seem to be a flat 10 acres in the Portland area. I mean, Portland is just rolling foothills that eventually lead to the Cascade Mountains in the east and the coast range in the west. And every single one of those rolling hills is covered with thousands of evergreens. I go back to Portland after living in Montana and Wyoming these past 10 years or so, and it's like, it's almost claustrophobic. You can't see the sky. And then, you probably know this, but the Pacific Northwest is known for rain. Uh, But it doesn't rain in the Pacific Northwest like it rains everywhere else. When we think rain in Wyoming, we think heavy rain that that usually clears fairly quickly. That kind of rain is is really rare in uh, Northwest Oregon. What makes Oregon so miserable and so depressing is its constant drizzle from November to May. And so it's just these low-level clouds that drizzle water for seven months out of the year. Literally, on the news weather, they will keep track of how many days it has been since we have seen blue sky. And so for days, for weeks, for months at a time, you don't ever see the sky. And so living and growing up in Oregon has given me an appreciation for seeing the sun in the sky. Being in the Mountain West, I just, I love watching the skies. I love watching them change. I love the clouds, the thunderstorms, the expansiveness of the sky. 
I mean, the skies here in, in Wyoming and Montana, they look like something straight from Andy's wall in Toy Story or a scene from Cars. The skies proclaim to us the glory of God. The great Chris Ledoux captured this in his song, Western Skies. He said, well, I just smile because they don't understand. But if they ever saw a sunrise on a mountain morning, watch those cotton candy clouds roll by, they'd know why I live beneath these western skies. If you ever held your woman on a summer's evening while the prairie moon was blazing in her eyes, you'd know why I live beneath these western skies. And that's what David is calling us to here. He's calling us to look to the incredible beauty, complexity, and expansiveness of creation of the skies. He is proclaiming to us the beauty and the grandeur of God's creation, which he says reveals his glory. He could see God's glory in the sun and the clouds and the beauty of sunrises and sunsets. He could see it in the night sky with the brightness of the moon, the awe of the starry sky, and the cloudy spread of distant galaxies. The skies proclaim the glory of God. And the amazing thing is that through science, uh, our understanding of the vastness and the greatness of creation and of the cosmos is so much greater than David could have imagined. NASA's Office of Space Science says our sun, which is the Earth's nearest star, is 93 million miles away. That's why the sun, which is a million times the size of Earth, looks so small. It would take the space shuttle seven months to fly to the sun. And the sun and its planets are just one small part of the Milky Way galaxy. And scientists say the Milky Way is so big that even at the speed of light, it would take 100,000 years to travel across it. Scientists say there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on the earth. An estimate of more than a billion trillion stars. These facts on the universe are mind-blowing and they proclaim to us the glory, how great our God is, who is creator. Isaiah says it like this. He says, who else has held the the oceans in his hand? Who has measured the heavens off with his fingers? Who else knows the weight of the earth who has weighed the mountains and hills on a scale? David says all of that vast expanse of stars and galaxies is there for a reason and a purpose. He says they're not just static material, but the heavens are messengers of God. They are declaring to us the glory of God. That's their message, their ultimate purpose. God's creation shouted to David, it shouts to us, and it shouts to every corner of the world that the God who created all this is glorious, and it's evidence in his creation. So that's our first point today. God's glory is evidence. It is proclaimed in his creation. In theological terms, we call this the general revelation of God, meaning it is available to all people, and it provides the basic foundation of God's existence and his attributes. We see that in verse 4. It says, yet their voice, the sky's voice, goes to all of the earth, their words to the ends of the world. The glory of God in the visible heavens is for all to see. It is communicated to all mankind, no matter their language. It is a message that has gone out throughout the whole of the earth. Paul expanded this idea in Romans 1.20. He explained that God's invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that all are without excuse. Paul told us that because this testimony has gone through all of creation, all men are without excuse for rejecting God, who gave us a clear and beautiful evidence of his power and wisdom. Aristotle said, Should a man live underground and there converse with the works of art and mechanism, 
and should afterwards be brought up into the open day and see the several glories of the heavens and earth, he would immediately pronounce them the works of such a being as we define God to be. God's glory, God's existence is on display for all to see and for all to know through his creation. And his glory in creation beckons us to worship him for who he is as creator and sustainer of the world. Lamentations 3, 22 through 23 reads, Because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. Every morning when you rise and you see the sun and you see creation, it is a reminder for us of God's glory. A reminder of his love for you, his grace and his compassion. The universe, the heavens, creation declares to us how great, how glorious our God is. When you look upon creation, what is your response? I heard a pastor this week say this. He said, sin has a way of shrinking God down in our minds and puffing us up in our own estimation. But just a glance into the universe, to the universe that God has made, resizes everything in a heartbeat. And so for some, the application today is simply going to be to go outside and turn your phone off. Look up and read the message of glory written in creation in the sky above you. Take time to take in God's glory and let it lead you to give glory, to give weight, to give priority to God in your life. Let the glory of his creation resize and reorient your worship and your life around him. When you find yourself bogged down by life and sin and problems, take a minute, sit outside, and remember who created all that you see. Let that and God's glory reshape your perspective. So God reveals his glory to us through creation, but David says it's going to get better. In verse 7 of the psalm, it completely shifts from creation to the word of God, to the Bible. And so our next point is this, that God's glory is revealed in the Bible. In verse 7, David makes a sudden shift from the glory of God revealed through creation to the glory of God revealed in Scripture. And he says it is all the more magnificent that because it reveals God, but it also reveals a way that we can know him personally. In this section, David reveals six descriptions of the sufficiency of God's written word to us and the glory it reveals. Even the name David uses for God shifts here. It's just from the general to the glorious. In the first six verses, David uses the name El for God, which is the most generic word for God in the Hebrew language. But as he shifts to verses 7 through, through 10, he uses the word Yahweh, which was so sacred, so holy, so glorious, the Jews wouldn't even say it out loud. It's as if David is saying to us, creation is incredible. It tells us so much about God. But he says his word is so much greater. He is drawing us into this incredible gift we've been given, which tells us of the glory of God and then beckons us to a relationship with him. It's the word of God that reveals his grace and our hope of salvation. So let's look at those six descriptions real quickly. David says, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. David says God's word is perfect. It is never wrong. Never wrong. In theological terms, we say it is inerrant. We can trust it completely, and it is effective for refreshing the soul. We can trust the word of God, and we can trust that it revives and refreshes the soul of those who believe it. 
for the weary and tired travel. It is the hope, the oasis, the water of life that refreshes, revives, and gives life to the soul. Van Germeren, in his commentary, said it like this. He said, God's word revives. Its restorative quality gives healing to the whole person by assuring forgiveness and cleansing by giving life to the godly. And we can trust in that forgiveness because God's word is perfect. David continues, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The word of the Lord is trustworthy. It is sure because it is confirmed. David in Psalm 119.89 would say, the word is settled in heaven. Because of that, even those of us that are simple by the world's definition can be wise if we read the scriptures, listen to the scriptures, and then apply them to our life. He continues, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The precepts of the Lord are right. That's such a comforting thought to know that God's word always directs us on right paths. In this crazy and sometimes complex world we live in, we can trust that the Bible will always lead us on right paths. This assurance and confidence we can have in the paths laid out before us give joy to the heart. He continues, the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. In this muddled world, we can find joy and peace in the fact that the Word of God is not dark and mysterious. But the Word of God is clear, it is pure, and it shines brightly, revealing the truth of God. He continues, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. And the fear of the Lord here is not meaning terrified for one's life, but it is a sense of awe and majesty of who God is. If you read the scriptures, if you look at creation, and you understand how great God is, and yet how he loves us, it ought to create in you an awe and majesty of who he is that will endure forever as we continue to learn about how great and how glorious he is. Then David says, the decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. There is nothing false, nothing impure, nothing unrighteous about the word of God. Our world at times might try to twist that, but because it is pure, because it is from our holy God, we can trust its decrees as righteous when the world opposes them. And then unlike the previous statements, this statement has no applied aspect to it. Commentator David Guzik writes, perhaps David assumed we would be wise and logical enough to apply it ourselves. Therefore, read God's word, study it, meditate on it, love it, and live it out. The word of God reveals his glory, his greatness, his purity, his love, and his grace for us. As we read the Bible, as we study it, as we hear it preached, its goodness, its assuredness, its truth calls us to respond to the grace of God. And because of the life, the hope, the grace, the truth, the word of God reveals, David says, it is infinitely valuable. Verse 10, he says, they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. King David insists the value of God's word, his written revelation to man, was more valuable and desirable than gold itself. David wanted no amount of money or wealth to command his attention and affection more than the word of God. One commentator I read this week made this challenging point. He said, King David was a massively wealthy man, yet he is rarely known for his riches. Instead, he is much more known for his great heart toward God. His affection was for God, and that's what he was remembered by. We often think of wealth being the issue, but in King David's life, we see that was not the case. You can have extreme wealth and still live for God, or you can have no wealth and live for God. 
God, the Bible and God talk, constantly talks about it. it is our heart that is the issue, not the amount in our bank account. So what captures your heart? Is your heart captured by God and your affection for him? Or is it something else? Is your heart captured by wealth, by family, by yourself? David had all the material things in the world, but he is known best for being a man after God's own heart. What are you known for? What has your heart been captured by? David continues, they are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. David says the word of God is not only valuable, but is enjoyable. It is sweet. For David, the word of God is greater than any experience of the senses. Honey is sweet and pleasant to eat, but he says God's word is sweeter still. Blaise Pascal once said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man, which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. The world seeks to fill that void with the created. We seek to fill it by being, being more in touch with creation. We seek to fill it by acquiring riches, power, and prestige. We seek to fill it by satisfying our senses through food, through drink, through sex. But David, in these first 11 verses of Psalm 19, is declaring to us that we can't satisfy the void. The created can't satisfy that void, but only God himself can fill the void. Only God himself can satisfy our soul, can give us worth, purpose, satisfaction, and hope. The created that we often go to so often for satisfaction was not intended to be the solution. But instead, the created was created to point us to the glorious one who is our solution. Creation, the Bible, reveal the glory of God and ought to lead us to God through repentance and faith. So that's our next point. Seeing God's glory calls us to repentance and faith. We see that in verse 11 for David. He says, by them, by, by the word of God, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own heirs? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David recognizes it is his heir, it is his sin that will keep him from fellowship with, the great, with this great God. Sin is the imperfection that makes him unable to stand in the presence of a perfect God. And upon seeing the real God in creation in his word, he sees himself condemned by his sin. He needs salvation from his faults and he needs protection even from himself. He says, I need forgiveness both for my unknown sins and my willful sins. In the light of the glory of God, the, the perfection of God, David sees his sin and he sees his desperate need. You see, in the light of the greatness of God, his sin is exposed for what it is. His sin isn't enticing in the presence of God. It is the act, exact opposite. It is life-threatening. And what Psalm 19 reveals to us is that the solution for our sin problem is and always has been God. The solution doesn't begin with us, but it begins by seeing God for who He is. The all-glorious Creator who loves you and I so deeply that He would send His Son to die for us while we were still sinners. While we were running from Him. While we were reveling in our disobedience and our sin. Every morning, every night, every day, creation is proclaiming the glory of our God. The Bible proclaims to us the glory of God and the way to salvation. And when you understand how glorious God is, 
the natural response is to bow down and worship, to repent from your sins and to turn to him. That was David's response, and that ought to be our response as well. Have you ever humbled yourself before God and asked for his forgiveness? When David saw the glory of God, that that was his response. Has it ever been yours? Like David, you see your sin for what it is. The thing stopping you from entering into a relationship with the creator of the universe. You repent and say, God, I I can't even see all my sin. They are so many. Like David, you cry out for salvation and say, save me from my sin so that I might live with you. Have you ever done that? Have you ever experienced his salvation? This is the journey of every person that has found their faith and hope in Jesus. They were created by the same God that spoke the world into existence, who gave his law to live by. But they sinned. They chose their own path over God's path. The Bible says that everyone, every single person has sinned. And in that sin has fallen short of the glory and the holiness of God. And the Bible says the consequence or the wage of that sin is death and separation from God. Because of our sin, we cannot be in the presence of a holy God. For if we were, our sin would defile His holiness. We cannot earn our way to God. We cannot do enough good works to make up for our sin. We are hopeless in our sin, the Bible tells us. Charles Spurgeon said, One might better try to sail the Atlantic in a paper boat than try to get to heaven on good works. The good news, the hope of the Bible says that there is hope. And that hope is available through Jesus alone. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, while we were living in sin, while we were running the other way, God sent Jesus to die on the cross and pay the penalty of death that our sin deserves. That's the message of the gospel and every Christian's testimony is that at some point they heard that. God gave them a glimpse of his glory, a glimpse of his greatness, and it changed everything. The glory and greatness of God left them searching for more of him, desiring to be in a relationship with him, and it led them to salvation. God shows you a glimpse of his greatness and it pierces through the world that you have built for yourself. For you, maybe that's today. And as you realize just how great God is, you also realize how unworthy you are as a sinner. And in that, it leads you straight to the hope of Jesus. The Bible says, died the death you deserved, took the condemnation you deserved, and then rose victorious over death three days later. And it's that life, that victory over death that he offers to all who will repent, who will turn for their sins, from their ways, and make him Lord of their life. Jesus offers you life and forgiveness if you will repent and follow after him. If you will make him Lord, if you will give him the glory, the weight, the priority he deserves for who he is and how glorious he is. Let the glory of God lead you to salvation today, just as it led David. And if you're ready to do that, you can surrender your life and experience his forgiveness today. In your seat, wherever you are on the couch, you can surrender your life and trust him today. It's something as simple as recognizing your sin, repenting, which means turning from your sin and turning to God. And saying, God, I trust that you are who you said you are, that you are creator, that you are glorious. I trust that you sent Jesus and he died the death my sin deserved. And he rose victorious and I want that life in my life. You can do that. You can surrender and say, I want to make you Lord of my life. You can do that in your seat. You can talk to a friend that's a Christian. You can talk to me. But ask your questions. Investigate who Jesus is and surrender your life. 
And as we respond, if you are a Christian already, take a few minutes and think about your own life. What does your life look like in response to this all-glorious God? As you look at your life, you think about King David. Are you known for your love of God or are you known for something else? As you examine your life, what is it that you prioritize? What is it that you give the most weight to? Is it something created or is it the creator? Be honest and repent of those areas where you are pursuing the created as opposed to the creator. When you look for satisfaction and joy, is it the creator or is it the created that you worship? If it's the created, repent and ask God to change your hearts and your affections towards him. Intentionally see his beauty in creation and then begin regularly reading of his glory in scripture. Read the Bible. Pray the Bible. Let it sink in in your life and then apply it and live it out. David says to us, God's glory is revealed in creation every day. God's glory is more greatly revealed in his word and the salvation and hope available in it. And his glory should lead us to repentance, to give weight, to give priority to who God is. I'm going to pray for us, and I do. The worship team is going to come uh, and lead us in a final song. Dear Lord, we thank you that you reveal your glory to us. And it's not a mystery who you are. But then each day you reveal your glory anew. That we can see your glory in the skies and the heavens in creation. That we can see how marvelous, how grand, and how great you are. God, I pray that as we leave this building today, that you would help us to see your glory all around us. God, we thank you you don't stop there. That you revealed yourself through your word. You didn't just reveal your glory, but you revealed a way that we can be in relationship with you. That we can be restored to you. That we can be forgiven. That we can have eternal life in you. God, I pray that you would help us to see that glory. That you would help us to give weight and priority to that glory. God, that you would make uh, your glory just so present in our life that we, like David, would be led to change. That we would be led to change through repentance, through reprioritizing our life around you by making you Lord of our life, by giving you every aspect and area of our life. God, under someone that doesn't know you, Lord, they would surrender and find your hope for the first time. God, make your glory known to us today. Help us to feel the weight and the greatness of your glory. And God, as we feel that and see that, Lord, I pray that it would lead us to change. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for how great and glorious you are. We thank you for the hope and life and, and, and relationship we can have with you. We thank you that you love us. Lord, in your name we pray. Amen.